Hi everyone, Steve Shepard here. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project. In prior episodes, you've heard me refer to books by one of my favorite authors, a guy named John Stilgo, who is a professor of, I think, urban studies at Harvard. Now, I say I think because his work is unique and it's hard to qualify with just a label. One of his books, and my favorite of all of his books, is called Outside Lies Magic. In it, he asks readers to get out of their cars, hop on a bike, or even better, walk, to discover their communities. But I mean really, really discover them, because you see so much more when you walk around. I've tried it, and he's right. He points out all kinds of things in the book that we never see because we're locked inside a car, but there are things we should see. For example, what do those metal numbers and letters mean that are nailed onto telephone poles? Why are there mailboxes, and by the way, they're usually green, that have no place to put mail? What are they for? What are standpipes for? And what is actually in those big silver metal boxes that are on street corners in cities? The answer would surprise you, and if you read the book, you'll find it. As you know, I'm a language nut. Actually, for me, it's not about language, but rather about words and where they come from. So when Stilgo dedicated most of a chapter to words that have to do with land use, geography, he had me hooked, and he caused me to do a bunch of research into words that are land and measurement specific, because I'm curious. If you've ever flown over the Midwestern United States, you've probably noticed the precise grid lines that divide land into very large and very, very perfect squares. Now, we'll get to that in a minute, but believe me, there's a reason for that layout. In the U.S., the nominal measurement of land is an acre. An acre measures one chain on one side and one furlong on the other. I know, you don't know what those are. Neither did I until I researched them, so stand by. But for now, just know that an acre is 4,840 square yards, which works out to 1 640th of a square mile. So by definition, there are 640 acres in a square mile. And in case you care, that's about 40% of a hectare, which is 10,000 square meters, a standard that's used outside of the U.S., so where did acres come from? Well, an acre was originally defined as the amount of land that a person and two oxen could plow in a single day. That was important before the combustion engine was invented because livestock was precious and expensive, and if they were overworked, they could get hurt, or worse, make it impossible to plow a field or harvest a crop. Anyway, a furlong is an eighth of a mile. 220 yards, a little more than the length of two football fields. A chain, meanwhile, is 66 feet, or 22 yards. Now, not many people use it as a measure anymore to indicate distance, although firefighters do. So if you multiply 22 yards, which is a chain, by 220 yards, which is a furlong, you get magic. That's 4,840 square yards, which is one acre. And by the way, a furlong is the maximum length of a furrow that could be plowed before the team, both human and oxen, needed to stop and rest. One furrow long. A furlong. Get it? Okay. John Stilgo points out in Outside Lies Magic that this kind of common knowledge, which has its origins deep in the past, is called ground rules. 
because they were used to do everything from determining the size of farm fields, the ground, to laying out house foundations and even determining where electrical outlets should be installed and how high off the ground they should be. Did you know that the standard height of an outlet has always been determined by standing an electrician's hammer upright against the wall? The box for the outlet is installed at the top of the hammer. That's a true story. Another important ground rule had to do with the shape of fields. And it isn't just for aesthetic reasons. It turns out that square fields require less fencing than rectangular fields, believe it or not. A square field that is a thousand feet on each side has a million square feet inside and requires 4,000 feet of fence to enclose it. But a rectangular field that's, let's say, 500 feet on one side and 2,000 feet on the other encloses the same number of square feet of land, but it requires 5,000 feet of fence, not 4,000. In spite of this, farmers actually prefer rectangular fields, even though they have to pay for, in this case, another 1,000 feet of fencing. Why? Because rectangular fields require less turnarounds, and turning around costs time, energy, and fuel, which, on a large field, costs more than the added fence, not to mention wear and tear, on your team of oxen. Now, John Stilgo traces the origin of all these cool measurements back to the early days of the country, and one of the many things that John Adams, our second president, and Thomas Jefferson, our third president, fought about. And by the way, just a quick aside on these two men before I continue. Adams preceded Jefferson as president of the newly formed United States. They could not have been more different in terms of their personalities or their political beliefs. Adams believed in a strong, centralized government, while Jefferson believed that the power of the federal government should be limited and should defer more to individual states' rights. Jefferson was Adams' vice president, and the animosity between the two got so bad that Jefferson actually walked away, leaving Adams and Washington behind, choosing to retire to Monticello. Once he was away, he began to make plans to bring his Republican Party back into power during the presidential election of 1800. The campaign leading up to the election was extremely nasty. Sound familiar? With both parties and candidates attacking each other with slanderous speeches and ugly newspaper articles. Now, eventually, Jefferson won. But in the process, he lost his friendship with Adams forever. At least, that's what everybody thought. Enter Benjamin Franklin. Franklin believed that it was bad for the country to have two of its most important elder statesmen at each other's throats, so he began a long process of quiet reconciliation between the two. He was smarter than both of them, because neither one of them realized what he was doing, but it worked. After serving two terms as president, Jefferson received a letter from Adams, engineered behind the scenes by Franklin, wishing him well. Soon the two reconciled, and they enjoyed another 14 years of close friendship. Now this is where it gets really, really interesting. On July 4th, 1826, Independence Day, at the age of 90, Adams lay dying while the country celebrated the 50th anniversary of the founding of the nation. His last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. But he was wrong. Jefferson had died five hours earlier 
at Monticello at the age of 83. Both died on the nation's 50th anniversary, the nation they helped create. And by the way, five years later, President James Monroe also died on July 4th. Now, another thing that Jefferson and Adams argued about was the standard of measurement for the new country. They wanted to go in completely different directions. Jefferson wanted to use a decimal system where everything would be counted in multiples of 10, while Adams wanted to use the system that had been in use in Europe for centuries. His reasoning was actually kind of interesting and also sounds familiar given current events. Adams, it turns out, didn't want to use the decimal system because in his mind, it gave an economic advantage to the wealthy. The system he wanted to use, one based on a 12-count numbering scheme, not 10, made it easier for less wealthy citizens to prosper because it made it much easier to divide and share wealth as required than the decimal system did. If you think about it, it makes sense. Imagine a farmer who wants to sell eggs. If a system is used based on the number 10, then eggs can only be sold in groups of 1, 5, or 10. But if a 12-based system is used, eggs can be sold in groups of 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, and 12. But Adam's concerns went way beyond the selling of farm products. He was also concerned with a very real need to populate the newly formed country and get land into the hands of farmers and ranchers as quickly and efficiently as possible. Again, his reasoning was sound. Every square mile contained 640 acres, which could easily be divided between two or four families. In fact, since the belief at the time was that 40 acres was the minimal size of a piece of land required to support a family and a piece of farm equipment, that would be an ox, then a square mile could be divided into 16 40-acre parcels. Now, ultimately, Adams won the argument, and he convinced Jefferson that townships in the central and western part of the country, those big square areas I referred to at the beginning of the episode, should be laid out by surveyors as six-square-mile parcels. Each township, then, contained 36 sections of land, with each section being one square mile or 640 acres. As it turns out, both Adams and Jefferson got what they wanted. Jefferson won because the nation's currency became decimal-based. Adams won because, as John Stilgo points out, the landscape was based on the old ground rules. And don't forget, days still have two dozen hours and years a dozen months. Point Adams. So the next time you're flying over the middle of the country, marveling at all the open space down there, and there is a lot of it, pay attention to the roads that delineate the farm fields. And by the way, this doesn't work with the freeways, just the surface roads. They're all perfectly straight. They cross at perfect right angles, and they are exactly one mile apart. Thank you, President Adams. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Isn't this stuff great? Hi, 
I started this podcast because, like Don Quixote, the famous errant knight who attacked the windmills of La Mancha because he thought they were evil giants, I found my own windmill to attack. In my case, that windmill is the belief that the gift of human curiosity can save the world. Curiosity, after all, is the parent of why, the most powerful question ever asked. And every time we ask that question, we're shining light on the shadowy corners of our world that need illumination, the mortal enemy of ignorance and the status quo. I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding, something that seems to be in short supply these days. In this podcast, I tell stories that spark my curiosity. My goal isn't to change minds. My goal is to expand them. Every episode is different. The only thing that ties them together is that each story, and each episode is a story, presents something interesting that made me curious. So I do a little research, and whatever I find, I share with you. I hope you'll do the same. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy.